It may or may not surprise you to know that counterfeiting is a major problem in the world today. The term used to be used primarily of counterfeiting currency, printing fake bills, but it has evolved into something much greater. Counterfeiting today is much greater. It's defined as producing an imitation with the intent to deceive, to look like the real thing, but it's not genuine. It is inferior and of lower quality. It not only involves currency, but it can involve things like retail products, technology, even intellectual property. It is vast and far-reaching and is taking a huge toll on the economy as individuals, businesses, and even countries engage in the trillion-dollar business of counterfeiting. But tonight, we are going to look at a passage of Scripture that addresses the most important most critical of all things ever counterfeited, and that would be counterfeit faith. The passage we are going to look at this evening gives us some clear direction in knowing how to spot counterfeiting when it comes to the faith. But I have to admit, and I will say right up front, that this passage has also been a source of contention throughout the generations. The passage I am referring to is a passage found in the letter of James, chapter 2, We'll be looking at verses 14 through 26 if you want to be turning there. And I say it has been contentious primarily for the words James shares about the necessity of works in the life of a believer. We have been taught and we know it to be true that one is saved only by grace. That there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. That it is entirely and completely a work of God. It is made plain in many scriptures, one of which is found in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, which says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not by your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now compare these words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 with the words of James here in his letter, such as down in verse 17 of chapter 2, where he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And on the surface, one may conclude that there's a contradiction, competing theology. Well, we also believe and we know that there are no contradictions in the Bible. So all of Scripture is God's breathed and true. So we need to reconcile this, and we can and we will. But it is this type of teaching by James that has caused some to minimize his letter. Some even tried to keep it out of the canon of Scripture. And that is probably why, although it was one of the earliest New Testament letters, manuscripts to be written, it was one of the last to be added to the canon of Scripture. Even the great reformer Martin Luther called it once a strawy epistle, probably because it had very little doctrinal content and truthfully, probably because of the verse I just read and others like it that put an emphasis on works. You have to remember that Martin Luther spent a great deal of his time battling the Roman Catholic Church and their misuse of scriptures like this. And when we think about it, we have to somehow reconcile these and make sure we understand what James is saying. And when we do that, we come to see that Paul and James were not competing with theology they were on the same line. They both believed and taught the same thing, that a person was and is saved only by grace, 
but that faith was evidenced by and would always be accompanied by good works. So Martin Luther, I believe, along with many other great men of the faith, were a little bit weak on, I think, coming to grips with this. The more I study the Bible, the more impressed and in awe I am of God and his wisdom. Him being the author and creator of man, he knows perfectly the nature of man. He knows that we are by nature men of extremes. He knew that man would try to twist his words and to add to the gospel and pervert the free gift of grace by adding a work salvation to it. And the legalists did that from the very beginning. And they're still doing it today. Saying that there are certain things in addition to grace by faith one must do to be saved. God also knew that the opposite would happen. That some would pervert the gospel and the gift of grace and would take the posture that all they have to do is believe. That's all they have to do. It doesn't matter how they live, that they're forgiven. Just intellectually believe the facts about God and Jesus and you're good to go. In his wisdom... God, though, gave us scriptures by different authors using different audiences and contexts to make known to us all we need to know to clarify these things, to have the proper balance and understanding of these deep theological truths in conjunction with the practical day-to-day application of them. They are not contradictions. They are not competing truths, but different sides of the same coin given to us to help us to understand and live out our faith. So before we read our passage, by way of introduction, we must remember the context of James' letter. If you go back to verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that it was written to the Jews who were scattered. These were the first believers. This is the early believing Jews who have professed to be believers in Christ, and then they were persecuted and scattered. And what James was finding to be true then, and we still find true today, is that there were real believers in the church and there were counterfeit believers in the church. There were real teachers within the church and there were false teachers within the church. And I'm here to tell you it's still happening today. Every New Testament writer just about addressed this in their writings And it's made very clearly in the book of James that one of his main priorities as he writes is to give his readers a series of tests to apply to their faith to bring to light the true status of their faith. Is it real or is it counterfeit? He has gone through several of these tests in earlier portions of his letter. In chapter 1, he's looked at the trials and how the believer handles those trials tells us a lot about their faith. He has discussed the test of temptation, the test of obedience to the word, how the genuine believer is a doer of the word and not just a hearer. In chapter 2, he has us examine our faith on the basis of whether we show favoritism or not. Later in chapter 3, he's going to use the tongue and the test of our words for us to examine the genuineness of our faith. But here in our passage, James clearly uses our works as an outward, visible manifestation of our faith. So let's read our text. Beginning in James chapter 2, I'm going to read through verses 14 through 26. I'm reading out of the ESV version. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace... Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. 
What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So as we begin, I have to say that I know that I've bitten off a lot more than I can adequately cover in detail in the next 30 minutes. So I'll keep the outline brief and simple. I know that I could go much deeper, but for tonight I want to keep it simple because sometimes that's just what we need. We need the simple truth. In this passage, we're going to see simply that James shows us two kinds of faith. A dead faith, which is a counterfeit faith, and a living faith, a genuine saving faith. So James starts with the dead faith and he gives us several characteristics of a dead faith. And he does it by asking the question in verse 14. If a man says he has faith, but he has no works, what good is it? Here we see the first characteristic of a dead faith. A dead faith is merely a self-proclaimed faith. James chooses his words carefully, and he says if someone says he has faith, emphasis on if he says, not if he is, but if he says he is, This makes it very clear to me that not everyone who calls himself a believer is a true believer. This is so critically important today in our age. So many people are deceived into thinking that because they intellectually believe a certain set of facts about God, that they acknowledge Jesus as his son, that they may have walked an aisle and said a prayer, that they are saved. It matters not to them that they never really repented of their sin, that they have no desire to please or obey God, that they don't even ever read or study their Bible, and they have no desire to do it. And yet they proclaim to have faith, to be called a child of God, and they are assured to themselves that they will go to heaven when they die. But many times that's all it is. It's just a self-proclaimed believer, not necessarily a true, genuine believer. And many of these people are very sincere, and yet I say they're deceived. A person may be very sincere, and yet sincerely wrong. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Counterfeiting is a serious thing, and nowhere is it more serious in the area of our faith. It hinges on life and death. Eternal life swings in the balance. This has nothing really to do with our passage, but as I meditated on this, it brought to mind the stupid nonsense that's going on in our culture today on this whole gender identity arena. A man can just say, even though all the evidence points to a God-given, science-proven, specific gender, I can just say, no, 
I'm a female. I proclaim to be a female. It doesn't matter that I have male parts, male chromosomes, male genetic makeup, male hormones. I just proclaim myself to be a woman. It's nonsense. Common sense says that proclamation alone doesn't make it so. It has even gone so far that you can proclaim to be a cat. Terry and I were in the store a few weeks ago. It was in the Spectrum store turning in a box and we saw someone dressed up like a cat and they even had a tail pinned on themselves. And I thought it was crazy. And Terry said, no, that's a real thing. They call them furries. And it's lunacy, I know. It's not even a good attempt at counterfeiting. The only thing you have to do is make a self-proclamation, though, today. And we're supposed to take, accept that as real and genuine. But it's not real. It's not genuine. It's not authentic. Self-proclamation does not make it real. And hopefully we all know this, and we're not buying into this deception, but that's not our topic tonight. It's about counterfeit faith, which is much more important and also very prevalent and growing rapidly among us. James is going to tell us how we can validate our faith or even someone else's faith, but it's not on the basis of what they say. They can say all the right things, but that's not what saves us, which is the second characteristic of a dead faith. A dead faith does not save. A dead faith is not a saving faith. By making the claim to be a child of God does not make it so. What then is the test? James tells us in his question. He says, what good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If you make the claim but have no works, does your faith save you? This is one of those questions that by asking the question, you have the answer, don't you? It's implied in the question. Does that faith save you? It's rhetorical. The answer is absolutely not. A faith without works does not save. That is the crux of a dead faith. It is a faith without works. And according to James, a faith without works is a dead faith, a faith that does not save. And we could spend the rest of our time here tonight battling with and contrasting these words with other scriptures, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because I think the group here tonight clearly understands that our works do not save us, that James is not in conflict with Paul and and teaching salvation by grace alone. Paul also understood that works were a byproduct of true saving faith. In Ephesians 2 and 8 and 9, which I read earlier, Paul said clearly that we were saved by grace and not by works. But he went on in verse 10 to say, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul taught that works were a byproduct of true faith, just as James is doing. The emphasis was just not as dramatic. The old time preacher J. Vernon McGee in his commentary said, Paul and James do not stand face to face fighting against each other, but they stand back to back fighting opposite foes. It is James' choice of words in his letter and his strong stance on works as being evidence of true faith that creates a problem for some people. But as I studied this and meditated on it, I thought a lot about where James got his teaching. James was the Lord's brother. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. He was there when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. 
He was there for most, if not all, the times where Jesus told parables and taught for hours on end of practical application of how believers should live out their faith. He was primarily influenced by the words of Jesus himself. He was most likely there when Jesus spoke the words recorded in Matthew 25. He spoke about coming back and separating the sheep from the goats. A great Palestinian illustration they all could understand. In that story, as Jesus explains it, he equates the sheep on his right as those who did something, those who had good works. Let me read that. Beginning in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 36. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him and will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you and from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Here we see Jesus equates the righteous behavior and those who inherit the kingdom. It was just not an intellectual belief, but he made that correlation between what you do and what you believe. After this, he went on to say, those who did not do these things, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. These words could be confusing if that's all Jesus ever said about eternal life. But we have the whole of Scripture. We know that Jesus told Nicodemus, the religious almsgiving Jewish leader, when he asked Jesus about being saved, he told him, you must be born again. He didn't mention works to him. Jesus in his other teaching talked about repentance from sin. He talked about himself as being the only way to God, belief in him. He never said that works save you, but he did just like James is doing, use works as an indicator of someone who had real saving faith. John Calvin once said, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. I like that. A person who trusts in Christ will have works to evidence their faith. And if they don't, if they have no works then he tells us what kind of faith that is. He says it's a dead faith. He makes that clear in the next verses that lead us to our third characteristic about a dead faith. And that is that a dead faith is empty and useless. Look at verses 15 and 16. James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So we see here, James gives an illustration of a dead faith, a faith that is useless and empty. It's actually a pretty ludicrous example. The words are exaggerated for emphasis. He tells of a person who's poorly clothed, a lot of versions say naked, that he had no clothes, insufficiently provided for in the area of clothing and a need of daily food. Not just hungry, but he lacks the daily needed for food for survival. Can you imagine coming across a person like this and telling them to go in peace? Be warm, be filled, 
God bless you. This shows a total disregard for the welfare of a person in desperate need. This person's response was completely of no use to them. It was worthless response. And he concludes this illustration by contrasting this lack of compassion to faith without works. He says in verse 17, so also faith by itself that does not have works is dead. A faith without action is useless and dead. Sometimes when I hear that people have a problem with these words of James, I wonder if they ever had a problem with what Jesus said. Jesus taught the same thing, many similar things. We already read his words where he talked about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those in prison, but that's not the only place where Jesus talks about doing good works. I thought about the parable of the Good Samaritan. In that parable, he condemns the religious person who walked by, who ignored the injured person in need. And he praises the Samaritan who took the time to help. These words were given in the context of how to fulfill the command to love your neighbor as yourself, which was the second greatest commandment. Jesus spoke many times in this way, using our actions and our works as an indicator of our faith. This is a really good reminder that compassion is a good thermometer of our faith. My oldest daughter once, years ago, was a waitress for several years, and one of the things she told me that I've never forgotten was that along with all the other waitresses at her restaurant, hated working the lunch shift on Sunday afternoon. And I said, why? And she said, the church crowd was the worst tippers. And sometimes they would just leave a couple of dollars in a tract. It was a very poor witness to her and the other waitresses, many of which were students trying to earn money for school on the weekends. It left a bad taste in their mouths about Christians and Christianity. This example is not exactly what James is talking about, but we should remember that compassion and generosity are a reflection on our faith. What James is saying is that a faith that says, go in peace, be warm, be filled, God bless you, but does nothing to help someone in need, and they have the ability to help, are useless words in the same way faith that does not move you, that does not change you, is also useless and dead. A dead faith is not only useless, it's also empty. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James continues to just beat the truth into us that you cannot separate one from the other. You cannot separate works and faith. They go hand in hand. Many years ago, I heard a statement along this line and it's always stuck with me. It was along the lines of, If you were convicted of being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? It was best used when talking to someone who claimed to be a Christian, but it was hard to see any fruit in their lives. There was nothing in their life to point to besides their statement that they believed in Jesus. And it used the example of someone being on trial, being accused of being a Christian, And they were asked point blank, what evidence is there to convict you? Was there any real evidence besides your words, besides you say so, that could be used 
And that's what James is saying. You say you are a believer, prove it to me. Your words alone are not proof. And he uses the example that even the demons believe. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is a remarkable statement. I don't know if you've ever given that much thought. Not only do demons believe, they have a pretty good orthodox belief system, at least with the facts. Think about this. In many ways, maybe in most ways, the demons have a much better belief and hold to much better doctrine than do most professing Christians today, such as they are monotheistic. They believe in the one true God. They believe that scripture is God's word, that Jesus is God's son. That salvation is by grace alone. That Jesus was crucified. That he was resurrected. That he is now at the right hand of God. They know and believe that there is a literal heaven and hell. They believe all these things. I wish I could say that about all professing believers today. If a person said they believed all these things I just mentioned, many, probably most, would say and believe that they are saved. But the truth is, Intellectual knowledge, no matter how true it is, does not save. If that were true, then all the demons and Satan himself would be believers. This makes it clear that intellectual belief in certain facts about God and Jesus do not save us. Saving faith, faith that comes from God, changes us from the inside out. We are given new hearts, new spirits, new desires. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus he must be born again. He must be made new. Then and only then does one receive the Holy Spirit, which then blesses us with the fruits of the Spirit. And all of this translates into a living faith that is active. It encompasses the whole person. It affects every part of their being. It affects the way they walk, the way they talk, the way they act, the way they think, the way they interact with others. A faith with no works is just a self-professed faith. It is evidence of a dead faith, a faith that does not save a useless and empty faith. That brings us to the second kind of faith, the living faith. The main characteristics that James wants to get across here is that a living faith, a genuine saving faith, is an active faith. Let me read verses 21 through 26 again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here we see the opposite of a dead faith. Here James gives us two examples of living, saving faith. And he uses two very different people as illustrations. He uses Abraham. Abraham, 
the father of the Jewish people, the granddaddy of them all, the patriarch himself. And, and then he also uses Rahab, a woman, a prostitute. In both examples, he makes the point that their actions justify them, that they were justified by the works. Again, this has been a problem for many people. This seems to be a contradiction to what Paul and others wrote about being justified by grace alone. But I'm telling you, there's no contradiction. James himself acknowledges that Abraham was saved by faith. If you look at verse 23, you see that he quotes chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a reference to the imputed righteousness of God to Abraham by his belief and faith in him. The event that James is saying here that justifies Abraham is the offering of his son Isaac many years later after his initial declared imputed righteousness. So how do we reconcile this? The word that confuses us is the word justified. One of the things that helps us is to examine how this word is used in scripture. When you study this, you'll find the word justified is from the word dikeo, and it's used a couple of ways in Scripture. It primarily means acquittal, declaring a person and treating a person as righteous. That is the general meaning when it's used in relationship to salvation. That's the way Paul used it most often. But there's another way the word is used in Scripture, and that is defined as proof or vindication. Let me read a few places where it's used in that way. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it was used to say of Christ that he was revealed in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels. That word justified there can also be translated and is sometimes vindicated in the spirit. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. In Luke 7.35, after Jesus shared how some said that John the Baptist had a demon and how they said he himself was a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors. He made the statement that wisdom is justified by all her children. And that word is also translated sometimes vindicated. Or as Matthew said it in his gospel in eleven nineteen, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In other words, one's deeds vindicate or prove who they are. Even Paul used it this way in Romans 3, 4 when he said, Let God be true, though everyone else a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words. We're not made righteous by our words. We know that. But it can also mean that you are vindicated. They give proof by your words. This is the way that James is using the word here when he says that Abraham was justified by works. His action of offering up Isaac, his son, on the altar was vindication, was proof of his faith that it was real. He really did trust God. James continues by saying that his faith was completed or perfected by his works. It's the natural outgrowth of a real faith. In the same way that a fruit tree bears fruit, a real saving faith demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit. It's the natural completion of a growing, maturing faith. Then in verse 25, he gives the other example. He says, in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works. The same phraseology. 
when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. He begins this by saying in the same way. Interesting way to introduce the second example because the persons used in examples are so different. Abraham was the great Chaldean, the great leader, the moral man of God, the forefather in the faith that the children of God would look to. Rahab was a woman, a Canaanite, a Gentile, a prostitute, yet one who would also be listed along with Abraham and others in that great list of faithful men and women in Hebrews 11. She would even be in the lineage of Jesus as the great-grandmother of David. Why was she justified? We don't have time to read the text this evening, but in a nutshell, she came to trust in Jesus as her Messiah. And we are told her story in Joshua 2, how she protected the spies from the king of Jericho because she knew they were from the true God and she evidently had trusted in him. Her heart was right before God and God accepted her faith as righteousness and her faith resulted in acts of obedience and action. Therefore, her faith was justified, was vindicated by her actions. True faith, living faith, saving faith always reveals itself and likewise, as James says in his last words in our text, a dead faith is a faith without action. Just like a body without a spirit is dead, so is a faith without works. I know I've ran through this rather quickly. So in conclusion, what can we take away from this? I know that tonight I'm speaking to the core of Lakeside. Most of you here tonight are genuine believers, but we should never take that for granted. There might possibly be someone here tonight who is living a counterfeit faith, just going through the motions. So the number one thing we all have to do when we hear a message like this, number one, and most importantly, we must examine your own life and make sure you are a genuine believer. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to test yourself, to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Abraham and Rahab passed that test. Do you? Is there evidence to convict you as a Christian? Do your works vindicate and prove your faith is real? One of the primary ways you can do this is by examining the fruit in your life. Have you been changed? Can you look back since the time you expressed belief in Christ and see the life change in you caused by the Spirit of God? Ask yourself, since becoming a believer, how have I changed? Do I have a new heart? Am I a new creature? Are my thoughts, desires, and actions been made new? Not that you're perfect, but the pattern of your life testifies your obedience and service to God. Are you a real, genuine believer, or is your faith just self-proclaimed faith, a counterfeit faith? The second thing we can apply from this message from James is that we should not be naive. We should not assume that everyone who claims to be a believer is, in fact, a real, genuine believer. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. What difference does it make, you may ask? God knows their heart. I can't know their heart. Doesn't matter what I think. That might be true. But it does matter how you pray. 
It matters how you talk to them. You don't want to participate and encourage people in their deception. We want to continue to pray for salvation for those who call themselves believers but have no fruit. We need for God to reveal this to them and to uncover their deception. We need to encourage them to bear fruit. I'm amazed at how many people assume everyone who intellectually acknowledges a few facts about God and Jesus is assumed to be in heaven when they die. It goes against the teaching of the Bible that the road to heaven is narrow and the road to hell is wide. In the same way we don't want those who presently reject God to spend eternity in hell, we also most definitely do not want those who think they are saved but really are not to go through the rest of their lives deceived into thinking they are when in actuality they're just as lost as the person who rejects God outright. Continue to pray for and to witness to those whose fruit, whose works do not vindicate their faith. And lastly, Be aware that our works do not save us, but they are important because they are a reflection of the nature of our faith. We should continually be aware that the outward fruit of our lives, the works of our lives, reflect on the inward nature of our hearts and other people are always watching us. I don't know about you, but I do not like wondering if someone I love is truly saved or not. I love it when there is such a passion and a love for Jesus in a person's life and their life proclaims their faith because the fruit of the Spirit is so visible. There's nothing worse than always wondering after a person dies whether or not they were truly saved. We can hope and we can pray. They were, but the fruit of their lives leaves doubt. I know many of you have that going on in your family. That is an awful thing to leave a loved one with that doubt. So I say to the young people here tonight, if you died today, would your parents know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you were saved? Do your works, do your actions validate your faith? Parents, when you die, will your children know without a shadow of a doubt that you are with Jesus or will they just hope that your faith was real. Don't leave your friends and loved ones in that position wondering if your faith was real. I know that God is the only one who knows the heart of an individual. All we get is a glimpse of the heart and the actions and fruit of their life. But I pray that everyone here tonight's faith will continue to grow and mature and you will be rich in works of righteousness that will vindicate your faith to yourself, to your family, and your friends as an example of righteousness for future generation. And as always, if God's Spirit is moving on you and you want to talk to someone, please come forward after we close and I would be happy to talk with you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now thanking you for the inspired words of your brother James who reminds us that a real saving faith is a faith that is validated by our works, by our actions, and our obedience. Father, help us not to only be hearers of your word, but to be doers. Help us not to only be students and theologians of the great doctrines of the faith, but help us to live it out, to be people of love and compassion 
In the same way that Abraham and Rahab lived out our faith and were examples for us, may you help all of us to be examples to others, that they may see the actions and character of Christ lived out in us. And again, Father, if there's anyone here tonight who is living a lie, whose faith is counterfeit, it's useless and dead, Father, will you convict them and bring them to repentance and cause them to be born again, giving them a new heart that will change them and cause their faith to be one in which your Holy Spirit will work in them and validate to them and those around them that their faith is real and genuine. Father God, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus who made this possible by his atoning blood on the cross. Amen.